You are listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. Bill's been saying this, it's so natural to say, have a seat right now, but you probably weren't standing, so we're just gonna jump right in. Uh, If you have a Bible, will you turn with me to Genesis chapter 35? Would just encourage you, um, we've said this in the past, we've been doing this for several weeks now, just want you to participate in this. This is a live stream, it can feel a lot easier for you to just kinda consume or to watch it, but we want you to participate and engage, and so open your Bible, and as we sing, man, actually sing and, and allow to really just lean in, right? I think it's easier in a live stream to maybe just lean away a little bit and just kind of live your life and have it on in the background, but we wanna gather together in this way, so I encourage you to participate. And if you've been with us, um, we, you know we've been in this series through the second half of the book of Genesis, and we've been talking primarily about a guy named Jacob. And so in Genesis 35, Jacob, um, his story is pretty much coming to a close, and, and we're gonna see him a little bit more as the story zooms in on the life of his kids, but this, what we're gonna see this morning is it's kind of the last of three big encounters that Jacob has in his life with God. And where we're gonna pick it up this morning, Jacob has just made a huge mess of his life. I mean, a train wreck of his life. And this isn't the first time that he's jacked stuff up, but this is by far the most devastating. And so what happens right before this is that Jacob spends 20 years of his life away from home, and then he finally is gonna come back home, and he's not just like, I think that would be a good idea, he's actually on a mission. He's on a mission to go back to fulfill a promise that he made to God that he would go back to Bethel and he would go back to this place where God first showed up to him, back to this place where God first uh, reveals himself to him. And so Jacob and his family, they travel over 400 miles. They're coming south from Haran and Padan Aram down to, toward Bethel. And they travel almost 400 miles and they get really close to Bethel, but they stop about 20 miles short and they stop in a place called Shechem. And so you might be wondering, why would he do this, right? Why would he travel 400 miles and then stop 20 miles short? Well, we don't know for sure, but one of the reasons um, that probably factored into this decision was that Shechem was this lush valley, right? Shechem is this flat piece of land. It's green. There's plenty of water. It's positioned between two mountains. It's just this paradise of a place, right? Which means that it would be great. Not sure what just happened there. God's hearing us. Um, that Shechem means that it would be great for, uh, for a man who was in the sheep and the goat business. Jacob is in the sheep and the goat business, and so Shechem would be a great place for him. But Bethel, on the other hand, was about 20 miles further south, and it was 1,000 feet higher. And every commentator I read about Bethel said that Bethel is this rocky place, it's windswept, it's just not a great place to be. You just feel exposed and vulnerable and you're cold, right? This is kind of what this place is. And so what happens is, Jacob gets to Shechem and he's like, actually, I think this is gonna be a better place for me. I think this is actually gonna be a better plan for my life. And so it's subtle, but what I want you to pick up on here is that Jacob is drifting away from what God wants him to do. He's wandering away from what God wants for him. And I'm sure in this moment it would be easy for Jacob to justify this decision. He could say, this is close enough. I'm only 20 miles from where God wanted me to be. And in fact, this is actually much better for my business. Surely this is what God would want for me in my life, right? It's easy for him to justify that. And again, like I said earlier, the results of that compromise, that small compromise, that this is close enough compromise that Jacob makes is devastating. 
And you can read this in chapter 34 this afternoon if you want, if you're looking for a good time. And that's sarcasm if it didn't translate through the live stream. But what happens in 34 is Jacob and his family, they spend eight or 10 years in Shechem. And at some point while they're there, one of the men abuses Jacob's only daughter. And Jacob hears about it, but he isn't sure what to do. And so as he's trying to figure it out, come up with a plan that works well for him to kind of Uh, respond to what happened, as he's trying to figure that out, his sons find out about it and they lose their mind. They jump right to action, they go into the town, they kill every man in the town on the way through and on the way back through, they take everything that they had, they take all of their possessions. And so as a result, commentators call Genesis 34 the godless chapter, because God isn't mentioned one time in the whole thing. And then at the end of 34, Jacob has a conversation with his sons about what they've done, and I want you to hear this. This should be up on the live stream. Chapter 34, verse 30. And Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. He says, my numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and they attack me, then I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. And then in verse 31, they, they pretty much respond, well, what did you, what, what did you expect? You want us to just let them treat our sister that way? And so the Bible's not condoning their behavior, but what's happening is Jacob is being, his motivations are being put on display. So he confronts his sons, but he doesn't confront his sons because he wants them to know what they did was wrong. He confronts his sons because of how it makes him look. He says, you brought trouble on me. You make me stink to the inhabitants of the land, which basically means, hey, you're making my life more difficult and you have now given me a bad reputation. So you see what I mean about Jacob making a mess of his life? He failed God and he fails his family. He fails God because he fails to fulfill the promise that he made to God to go all the way to Bethel and he stops short in Shechem and in doing so he fails his family because as a result it leads his daughter to being abused and it leads his sons to become murderers. And I'm not saying that all this is Jacob's fault because it's not, but imagine the level of guilt and shame that Jacob must have felt in that moment. And if you know Jacob's story, you know that this isn't the first time that he's made a mess of things. And so I'm sure that he's thinking in that space after that confrontation with his sons, when his sons basically put him on blast and they say, what do you expect us to do? Just let them treat her that way? I bet in that moment he thinks, here I am again. I'm a failure. Constantly messing things up. And so there's this false idea in the church, I think, and in Christianity in general, where we're, we're preconditioned to think that once we have an encounter with God and once we surrender our lives to God, then we assume that our lives from that point forward should be a line that goes up and to the right. That's what our expectation is. We would expect Jacob, after his encounters with God, to start leading a community group. Start serving as a deacon in the church and now Jacob, because he had this encounter with God, he goes on mission trips every year and he, he tells everybody he can about Jesus, but that's not what happens, is it? Jacob has these encounters with God, but life begins to get in the way and he continues to struggle. He continues to slip back into this old way of doing things and I think for many of us, the same thing might be true. I think many of us have a tendency to get stuck in the guilt and the shame of our failures and no matter what we do or how hard we try, we end up in the same place where we started. But maybe that's not you, right? Maybe you haven't had this huge failure in your life. But if you're honest, it's just been a slow decline. 
You've just been coasting for a while. You're not even sure how long. And there may have been a time in your life where you were passionate and you had this energy about following Jesus, so much so where you'd be willing to wake up early and you would read your Bible and just tear through the pages of the scripture because you wanted to spend time with him. There was this energy and this vitality in your relationship with Jesus, but then over time, life begins to get in the way and you drift and you wander from the Lord and maybe you look up one day and you think to yourself, how did I get here? How have I drifted so far away from where I was at that one point? Was that even real? Have you even had that question? I thought that's to myself, of drifting from God and going, was everything in the past fake? Was I making it up? Was it even real? And what I wanna talk about this morning is, what do you do when that happens in your life? What do you do when when you feel stuck in your guilt and your shame, or you look up one day and you go, man, I have grown cold and complacent. What do you do when you've wandered from God? So I'm gonna give you three things in Genesis 35. Let's look at verse one. God said to Jacob, arise and go up to Bethel and dwell there and make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So in several other translations of the the Bible in Genesis 35, instead of starting with the word God, it starts with the word then, and so it runs out this way. Then God said to Jacob. And the reason why is because the events of chapter 35 aren't disconnected from what happens in 34, right? That Jacob had failed God, that he had failed as a husband and he had failed as a father, and then right at that spot where he feels stuck and his guilt and his shame when he's wandered from God for decades and now it's all blown up and it's all come crashing down on him, right at that spot, the Bible says, then God said to Jacob. And that may seem insignificant, but there is something in there that you cannot afford to miss because if we wanna know what to do when we've wandered from God, then we need to know something about the God who we've wandered from. So this past week, I came home from work and there was a towel just laying in the middle of our floor. It's not supposed to be there. And so I walk in and I'm like, What's going on with that? And I asked my wife, and she kind of whispers, and she said, you know, Zeke spilled a drink, and I haven't had a chance to fill it up. That's our four-year-old. And so if you're wondering why she hadn't had the chance to clean it up, we also have a two-year-old and a seven-week-old, and so she's got her hands full. And so I, I just do my duty in that space, and I jump, get to work, and I start to clean it up, and I ask her, um, you know, why were you whispering there? And she said, because when, he, when it happened, he looked at me, and he said, Mommy, don't tell Daddy. Said, Mommy, don't tell Daddy that I spilled this drink. And she said, well, why? And he said, because I don't want him to be sad. I don't want Daddy to be sad. And that made me feel better because I thought he would say, I don't want Daddy to be mad, right? Which is actually good. But what's happening there is that he didn't want to disappoint me. And the point that I want to make there is that when we make a mess in our lives, it matters who our father is. How you respond when you make a mess or how you respond when you've wandered from God is informed by who you believe God to be. Because if your dad flies off the handle every time you make a mistake, you will not feel the freedom when you fail to come to him. But if your father is loving and gracious, there's no one else in the world that you want by your side when you fail. It's the first number you call. And what we see in verse one is that God initiates with Jacob. He initiates with Jacob. He's not distanced from him in his pain, but rather he is attentive in it. And you have to see this, that in the midst of these devastating family circumstances, I mean, devastating circumstances for Jacob and his family, the thing that shakes him loose is the tender voice of God. 
God pursuing him and initiating to him and speaking to him. And what's he say? He says, go up to Bethel. Go back to the place where I met you when you were on the run from your brother, when you were scared and alone and afraid. Go back to Bethel, which if you remember, it means house of God. And so he says, go back there and make an altar there. And what's interesting is that this is actually the only time in the book of Genesis where God commands someone to go and make an altar. And I think this is the first answer to our question. What do we do when we've wandered from God? The first thing is that we go to God and we don't run from him. And I need you to see this in the text because God says to Jacob, go up to Bethel and make an altar. And the point here isn't go build the altar and then you can come and worship. These words from God to Jacob are an invitation. God is saying to Jacob, right on the heels of chapter 34, he's saying, I know you feel stuck. I know you feel like a failure. I know that you feel as though you have disqualified yourself of coming to me and God meets Jacob in that place and he says, go up to Bethel. Rather than being so focused on all the ways that you don't deserve to come to me, he says, come to Bethel. Go to the house of God. God invites Jacob to come. And then he reminds him of something. Look at what he says at the end of verse one. Go and make uh, an altar to who? to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So what God is saying is, Jacob, do you remember? Do you remember 30 years ago when you were running for your life? Do you remember then how I met you in Bethel? And his point isn't, Jacob, how could you forget? Right, God isn't rubbing Jacob's nose in his sin. His point is, I'm inviting you to remember the character and the nature of your God. Remember how I was there for you at your lowest point? Remember how you didn't deserve me way back then? I want you to go back there. Remember how I gave myself to you anyways? And so I think what God is doing with Jacob in this passage is something that you and I need to remember too. When we wander from God, we don't need to run from him, we need to go to him because we have a father who will not rub our noses in our sin. We have a father who's invited us to come to him because he's gracious and loving and it is his grace that changes us. Let's look how God's gracious invitation changes Jacob. Look at verse two with me. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. And then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. And so right away what we see there is this change, this huge shift in the life of Jacob where he's no longer willing to compromise. He's no longer willing to settle for this half-hearted obedience. And Jacob calls his family and his household to him. So there he is with his wives and his 12 children and, and all their servants and he says, hey, we're going to worship God. And what we can't breeze over is how awkward that family meeting must have been, right? I mean, Jacob is a guy who had this mentality toward God where he said, this is close enough. This is close enough. Surely this is what God would have meant for me. He doesn't really want Bethel, the hard thing. What he really wants is Shechem. He wants the green, the lush, the plenty of water. This is close enough. He lived with this, this is close enough mentality and you can't tell me that his kids didn't know that about him. Jacob wasn't leading family devotionals every week. His kids didn't wake up to see him reading his Bible at the kitchen table. And based on chapter 34, it seems like Jacob's kids were hurt by him a lot more than they were helped. But I love this about Jacob. He had been invited to go, and he goes. 
It didn't matter about all his past failures, all the mistakes. He had had an invitation from God. The tender voice of God shook him loose, and he said, we're going to worship. And he calls his family to go with him. And he gives them two things. He says, one, put away the foreign gods that are among you, and then two, he says, purify yourselves and change your garments. So what does this mean for us? When we read this, put away the foreign gods, it can a little bit sound like he is hoping to come back to them, that he's saving them for a rainy day, but another way to translate this word, put away, is to put distance between, right? The idea here is to completely get rid of them. And, and we don't know exactly what foreign gods Jacob is talking about. It might have been the idols that Rachel steals from her father Laban when they leave back in chapter 31, or it could have been some idol worship that he and his family had kind of adopted as they were living for those 10 years in Shechem, but we don't know. What we do know is that Jacob is saying to his family, we've allowed them to get too close. We've allowed these idols to sneak their way in too close to our lives, and we need to get rid of them. We need to put some distance between us and them. And so he says, get rid of the foreign gods and then purify yourselves and change your garments. And so the idea here is that Jacob and his family were unclean, that they wanted, uh, or they had wandered rather from God, and so now they wanted to go to Bethel, they wanted to go to the house of God, and if they went the way they were, it wouldn't make sense. And so if you're not careful, what this can sound like is that Jacob and his family had to go clean themselves up before they went to worship so that God would accept them. But look at what he says at the end of verse three. Then let us arise and go to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to who? The God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. And so Earlier I said that if we wanna know what to do when we've wandered from God, we need to know something about the God we've wandered from. And Jacob says, I wanna go worship the God who answers me in the day of my distress. He's there for me every time I need him. And the God who's been with me wherever I go, this is who God is. God hears our prayers, but he doesn't just hear, he answers, and not only that, he's with you everywhere you go. Friends, we have a father who shows up over and over and over again, a God who will never let us down. Does verse three sound like Jacob's trying to earn God's acceptance? No. Jacob knows he doesn't earn God's acceptance with his behavior because if he did, he would have already lost it. So he says to his family, remove the foreign gods and change your garments, not so you can earn God's love, but because he has graciously and freely given it to us and we wanna respond rightly to his grace. And Paul says something similar. I think maybe this will make more sense to us than put away foreign gods and change your clothes. In Ephesians 4, I want you to see this. Verse 17 says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. He's saying the grace of God has changed you. Verse 20, but that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and you were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. It's corrupt through deceitful desires. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds, he says, to put on the new self, which is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And so the first thing that we need to do when we have wandered from God is that we go to him. We don't run from him because he's invited us. And the second thing is here is we put off the old self and we put on the new which means that we put away the idols in our lives and we change our garments because, again, motivated by this reality that it's God's grace that changes us. 
And we're actually gonna hit this put off and put on very quickly because back in the fall in the book of Colossians, we preached a whole sermon on what it means to put off and put on and you can find that on our YouTube, on our website, you can listen or watch there. But the short version is this, is that we need to take our sins serious. Even the little compromises like, hey, this is close enough. I know I'm not perfect, but I'm doing the best I can. I'm a good guy, I'm, I'm better than so-and-so, whatever. Like, this is close enough. We need to take our sin seriously because the Bible says in Romans 3 that the wages of sin is death. And now, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus loves you enough that he would be the one who dies for those sins. But that doesn't mean that we continue to walk in them. Paul says uh, three chapters later in Romans 6, he says, what then, shall we sin all the more? So that grace may abound, he says, by no means. So it's God's grace that changes us. So we put off the old self and we put on the new, which means that we get serious about removing the idolatry and the sin that's in our lives. That's what it means to put off. And we get serious about pursuing growth in Christ's likeness, a growth in our relationship with Jesus, that we would put on the new self. And so after an encounter with God's grace, Jacob and his family, they begin to get serious. Look at verse four. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under a tree that was near Shechem. So there's a word in here that makes this sound like they wanted to come back to these idols. And the word hid, it, it can actually be translated in other versions, it says buried. So they weren't burying these idols like treasure, they're actually burying them like you do dead things. And the point is, hey, we've completely removed them from our lives. We're not even trying to take the rings and the idols and melt them down and use the monetary value to go feed hungry people. No, these things, are, we, we separate ourselves from them so much we are putting them in the grave. It's like what Paul says in Colossians 3. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And they bury them under a tree. And so you might be thinking, I mean, that's great for Jacob. Great for Jacob and his family, um, but what does that have to do with me? We don't worship idols. Well, just so we're on the same page, I'm gonna give you a definition for an idol. An idol is anything in your life that is more important to you than God. Anything in your life other than God that you think makes you matter, right? That gives you meaning and purpose, a sense of identity or worth in a world. A thing that you say, if I didn't have it, then my life wouldn't be worth living. And so, um, it, it's tricky to kind of identify things, but, but, but idols could be comfort, right? You might worship at the idol of comfort, which means that all your life kind of bows down to comfort. Whatever makes you comfortable, whatever makes you uh, or keeps you from being uncomfortable, rather, that's how you live your life. You worship at the idol of comfort. It could be power. It could be approval. That you worship at the idol of approval, and, and no matter what you do, all your decisions filter through this lens that I need people to validate me. I need people to affirm me. It could be control. It could be the idol of money or your kids or your job. On and on I could go. And what's interesting here is the word that Jacob uses. He says, put away the foreign gods that are among you. This word among, it means to be close, to be nestled up next to, to be in your midst. And so he's saying, put away the things that have gotten close to you, the things that have worked their way closer to your heart than God is. And so I think there's some work that we need to do here because the first step in putting away these foreign gods and idols is identifying what they are. And some of you, um, since I've been talking, you know exactly what's there. You know exactly what's in your heart that's gotten closer to you than God. 
the things that you feel like make you matter, but others of you, you have no idea. And man, this is work that you need to do. If you wanna be serious about putting off, about getting distance between you and the idols that are in your life, you need to know what they are. And so I'm just gonna encourage you, man, you got more time this week. The shelter in place creates more margin for us and we can leverage that for good to grow in Christ's likeness. And so I just encourage you, if you don't know what the idols of your heart are, the things that are in your life that mean more to you than God, that make you feel like you matter, you need to spend some time just thinking and asking yourself the question, what's there? Like what matters most to me in my life? And ask God to show you that you would be courageous enough to say, God, will you reveal to me the idols of my heart? And that, I say courageous because that takes uh, courage to say, God, reveal to me the things that are so important to me that I've elevated them above you and show them to me so that I can hand them away. That takes courage. And if you wanna be really brave, maybe ask somebody close to you. Husbands, ask your wives, what, babe, what do you think is closer to me than God? What do you think I value? What idol do I bow down to? Ask people in your community people you trust to say, will you help me see the things that have gotten so close to me that they've removed God from the place where he alone should rightly sit in my life. But either way, we need to get serious about this work, putting off the old and putting on the new. And, and here's the thing, it ain't gonna be easy. It will not be easy. And this is why so many of us continue to struggle with the same things over and over and over for the rest of our lives. Because even for Jacob, going to Bethel wasn't the easy decision, right? This wasn't the, the, the first time when, when Jacob said, I'll stop at Shechem. It wasn't an easy decision for him then, and it's not an easy decision this time. In fact, it was incredibly costly. Jacob going to Bethel and being obedient to God in chapter 35 meant that he would now expose his family. On that 20-mile journey, he was gonna expose his family to the rest of the Canaanites who had now heard about what his sons did in Shechem, and they wanted revenge. It was costly. In the same way, man, turning away from your idols could be costly. It probably will be costly. It may cost you a relationship. It might change the way certain people think about you. If you're gonna hand over the idol of approval, then you're gonna live your life in different ways. People are gonna start thinking about you in a different way. It might cost you a lot of money. But as we've seen in Jacob's life, whatever the cost, it will be worth it because obedience to God and his word is always the better way, always. Look what happens in verse five. As they journeyed, so they went, faithfully went. As they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, and so they didn't pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him, and there he built an altar. And he called the place El Bethel because there God revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother those 30 years ago. In verse eight, seems out of place. And Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died. She was buried under an oak below Bethel and so he called its name Alon Bakuth, which means oak of weeping. And so I'm gonna come back to verse eight in this death piece, but what we see here is despite the cost, Jacob is obedient to God and God protects them. Verse five says that this terror from God, it fell on the city so that they didn't go get revenge on Jacob. I have no idea what that means. But somehow, supernaturally, God makes them afraid to go and wanna just whoop up on Jacob and his sons. And here's what I want you to see in this. God has given you an invitation to go up to Bethel, to come to him, and he's gonna make a way for you to come. 
Maybe you're one of those people who are stuck, or maybe it's been forever. You've been wandering from God as long as you can remember, and you think, man, I'm in way too deep. There's no way for me to get out of this mess. Friends, God has invited you to come, and he will make a way for you to get home. And that does not mean that if you handle, again, this, this cost, it doesn't mean that there won't be a consequence for sin because there always is. Here's what it does mean, though. This is what verse five means for us that we grab onto is your, your feeling right now. I know I have this thing in my heart, but I don't wanna give it up because it's gonna cost me too much. Verse five means that God can be trusted. That obedience to God is always the better way. And so we go to God we don't run from him, we go to him and we put off the old self and we put on the new. And then let me show you the last thing here. Verse nine, God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and he blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. And so he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I'm God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your own body. And the land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I'm gonna give it to you and I'm gonna give the land to your offspring after you. And then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him. And he poured out a drink offering on it. He poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. So what's happening in this passage is that Jacob goes to worship goes to Bethel and he builds this altar as God commanded him and then God shows up. God speaks to him and what's interesting is that God says something to Jacob that he has already said to him. So verse 10 to 12 is actually like a combination of things that God has already said to him in his two previous encounters. Back in chapter 28 and in chapter 32, God is reminding Jacob of something. He's reminding him, not only that, it's actually almost verbatim what God says to Abraham, who's Jacob's grandfather back in Genesis 17. And so God reminds Jacob of the promise that he made to him 30 years earlier in that very spot. And God reminds Jacob that he is fulfilling a promise that he made to his grandfather through him. In verse 10, God says, your name is Jacob. Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. And that sounds awesome, right? But God already changed Jacob's name. He changed Jacob's name back in 32, so why would he say it again? The reason why is because God is reminding Jacob of what is true about him. He's saying, I've given you a new identity. No longer are you Jacob, which again means cheater or deceiver or liar. No longer are you the liar. No longer shall you be content with this is close enough, God, because you're Israel. And you can almost feel Jacob in this text about to do what I call yeah but theology, where you go, you hear this truth or you're reminded by God or from a, a friend or whatever, you hear this truth from God and you go, yeah but, yeah I know you changed my name but I messed up again. Yeah I know uh, you changed my name but, but look what happened to my family. Yeah I know but I'm a failure. In verse 11 God says to Jacob, I am God Almighty. And if you look in your Bible there, God and Almighty are both capitalized because this is a proper name from God. In the Hebrew, it's El Shaddai, which means the Almighty, the all-powerful, the, the sovereign, the one who is in control of every square inch of creation. And what God is saying to Jacob, he can, he can anticipate Jacob going, yeah, but, he's saying, I'm bigger than your yeah, buts. I am more powerful than your yeah, buts. And like I said, 
There's a beautiful connection in this passage of scripture to what God says to Abraham in Genesis 17. And so in, in Genesis 17, Abraham's 99 years old, and God says to him, I'm gonna make you the father of many nations, and he laughs. He's like, there's no way. And God says, I'm El Shaddai. I am God Almighty. I am bigger than your doubts, I'm bigger than your failures, and God is saying the same thing to Jacob here. I know what I'm doing with you. No longer shall you be called Jacob, your name is Israel. This is the third thing that we need to remember when we've wandered from God, is we remember the gospel. We remember who God says we are in Christ. So last night I was watching the Disney classic, The Lion King, with my boys, and I uh, basically saw the gospel according to The Lion King, right? So Simba wanders away from home, wanders away from who he is and what he's supposed to do, and he just kind of lives his life wandering for decades, seemingly, we don't really know how the storyline puts together, and then this monkey shows up, hits him in the head, and then Mufasa shows up in the clouds, and what's he say to him? He says, Simba, remember who you are. Remember the gospel, remember who you are. So just like Jacob, man, we are prone to wander from God. We are prone to drift away from who God says we are because like we said in the beginning, man, life just begins to get in the way. It just begins to get closer to us than God and, and all this energy and this, this passion that we had in following Jesus just kind of slips away. And you look up one day and you go, man, how did I get here? Stuck in my guilt and my shame. You feel too far gone to be used or to be loved by God and God says to you this morning, if that's you, he says, I'm El Shaddai. I am the almighty God. I am bigger and more powerful than your sin and your failure. I've given you a new name and a new identity. And this is what it means to be a Christian. Not, hey, now you gotta follow these rules. It means you bear the name of Christ. It means when God the Father looks at you, he doesn't see all your sin and failures. He sees the victory of Jesus. And so when you wander from God, you remember the gospel. You remember that God's love and his approval for you, it isn't based on your performance. It is based entirely on the performance of Christ counting for you. This is what God's talking about in verse 11. He says to Jacob, a nation and a company of nations will come for you and kings shall come from your own body. This is what we get to celebrate this week. Today is, as we said earlier, today's Palm Sunday, right? It's the day that we remember our King Jesus riding in on a donkey to the city of Jerusalem. That he willingly came knowing that he would go and die, lay his life down for sins that he didn't commit so that you and I can bear that new name. And so I want you to hear this this morning. No matter how long it's been that you've been wandering, no matter how far you feel like you've fallen, remember the gospel. Remember who you are in Christ, that you've been given a new name. You have been invited by God to come up to Bethel, to come to the house of God. So quit running and go to him. Put off the old self and put on the new and remember the gospel. Commentators call chapter 34 the godless chapter, which means that chapter 35 is the God-filled chapter, right? It is, it puts God's love and his grace on display for his children. But as we saw, it's not a pain-free chapter. I'm gonna hit this quick, but we read in verse eight that uh, Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, dies. 
And it seems out of place, I said that earlier, right? This is woman who had been really close to Jacob and his family and, and she probably took on the role of a mother to Jacob and so right in the middle of this encounter with God, she dies. And it actually gets worse because later in the chapter, Jacob's wife, his favorite wife, right, which you shouldn't have, but he has it, the favorite wife dies as she's given birth to her son. Look at verse 16. Then they journeyed from Bethel. And when they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor and she had a hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, she called his name Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died. She was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem, and Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It's the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. So what are we supposed to do with this, um, this reality that what sandwiches this incredible encounter with God is two deaths? the death of Jacob's wife and this woman who was incredibly close to him. And I think what this is showing us is that life in a Genesis 3, a sinful and a broken world, is not the way it should be. Life in this world is, is difficult, right? There's, it seems to me, as I, as I just look, right, it, it seems that there's always a ceiling to how much joy can be experienced, but there's no floor to the depth of our pain. It just doesn't seem like it's the way it could be, and surely we know this is true, right? especially now. I mean, a month ago, none of us even had a category of shelter in place. And yet here we are. And there's this tension in life of joy and pain and I think this is where Jacob was. But we need to see what he does. In verse 18, he says, the Bible says, as Rachel's dying, she names her son Benoni, which means the son of my sorrow. But Jacob names his son Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. Right hand was the place of honor. So Jacob basically changes his name from sorrow to honor. And I think the point here is that Jacob, who is now Israel, he has hope. Verse 21 says Israel journeyed on, which means he didn't give up. I'm at, I would wanna give up. A mother figure dies and your wife dies. I would wanna throw in the towel. I promise you, you would not see me here for a while if my wife died. But he doesn't give up. And in the same way, no matter how difficult things may seem, no matter how broken the world may be, we are not a people who live without hope. Because we have a God who's in control. A God who answers in the day of our distress and a God who is with us wherever we go. And just like King Jesus came into the city the first time, the Bible says there'll be, there'll be a day where he will come again. Only this time, he's not gonna ride in on a donkey to lay his life down and die for us. He's already done that. This time, the Bible says he's gonna ride in on the clouds and he's gonna put an end to sin and death once for all. And so we are a people who have hope because our God is El Shaddai. He can be trusted. He'll never let you down. And so when we wander from God, if that's where you're at, man, you go to God, don't run from him. You put off the old self and you put on the new and you remember the gospel, you remember who you are. Let me pray for us and let's sing and respond to this good news. Lord Jesus, what a reminder this morning that no matter 
how long it's been that we've been wandering from you, no matter how far we have fallen, we have received an invitation from you to go up to Bethel, to come to the house of God. I pray, Father, that we would hear this invitation and like Jacob, no matter how awkward those family meetings might be, we would go. We're going to worship. Thank you that you invited us to come to him and that you promise in this passage that you're not gonna turn us away. So I pray as we sing, pray as we sing and respond, God, would you hear our songs as an offering of worship because you alone deserve that place in our heart. We pray in Jesus' name.